Well, I invite you to join me in 1 Samuel 21 if you are not there already. 1 Samuel 21. Kind of an odd passage with a lot going on. And yet even here, there's something for us to learn from the word of the Lord. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, truly you have been our help in ages past. And Lord, truly you are our hope for years to come. Yet Lord, we know our hearts. We know how quickly we are overcome by fears and jealousies. How quickly our hearts and our eyes wander. It's easy for us to speak in big terms of our faith in you. And yet when it comes to little things, when it comes to day to day, so quickly we abandon faith. Lord, I pray that even through this passage this evening, that you would encourage us to strengthen our faith, Lord. Take our eyes off of the worries around us and turn our eyes to Jesus Christ to our hope. Encourage our hearts, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever made a little mistake that ended up having big consequences? Maybe it was a joke you said, something you said in passing that ended up affecting a relationship for years. Something along those lines. Something, something that in the moment seemed so small and yet ended up having large consequences. I think of kind of a humorous example. Chris and I were married right here in this auditorium on June 2nd, 2012. It was not this beautiful at the time. Uh, it was, it was, it was not, unbe it was 70s beautiful. It was uh, orange carpet and wood paneling, and you all remember that. I'll never forget that date. And yet, unfortunately, Pastor Humberg did forget that date. You see, the problem was, as Chris and I got married afterwards, and we were signing our, our marriage uh, certificate, Pastor Humberg accidentally put the wrong date. <laughs> he was one day off. And so Chris and I went on our honeymoon, and we got home, and we're, we're waiting, and we're waiting for our marriage license to come in the mail, and it's not coming, it's not coming, and where is it? So we reach out, and turns out that's when they discovered, well, there'd been a mistake. There'd been the wrong date. A little, tiny mistake. One day, ink on paper. It really wasn't that big of a deal in the end. It's more of a funny story. But it could have been a lot more complicated than it ended up. Another much more serious example. Another date, January 28, 1986. It's the date that the space shuttle Challenger broke apart 73 seconds into its flight, killing seven crew members. You think of a tragedy like that, and surely it must be something big, right? Something massive that went wrong. 
The reality is that it was simply a faulty O-ring. Something so small. In the end, it cost NASA upwards of $65 million, and most importantly, it cost seven lives because of one little tiny faulty O-ring. As we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 21 this evening, we see one tiny misstep that David takes. One little lie. Yes, we'll see in this passage, that little lie goes on to have massive consequences. So as we work our way through this passage, we'll see David, David who's ruled by his fear, and Saul who's ruled by his jealousy. First thing we see is David, the fearful. And it's almost kind of shocking of us to see something negative about David, right? We've been working our way through the life of David, and and so far, everything has been fairly positive. We've seen this young man who the Lord has, has risen up. This young man who's been faithful and bold and brave. He has stepped up when everyone else has stepped back. He has been faithful even when Saul has been unfaithful, trying to kill him. Yet even David is a sinner. As we come to 1 Samuel 21, we're actually jumping ahead in time. Last time we were together was 1 Samuel 18. In the meantime, more of the same has been going on. Saul is after David. He is trying to kill him. In chapter 18, we left off. David became the king's son-in-law. You might remember the story as, as David wants to become the king's son-in-law. He's offered, Saul has offered his daughter Michael. And Saul says to David, I'll, I'll let you have her, not for a dowry, but if you go and you, you can kill this many Philistines and bring me back the trophies. Saul's plan, as we saw in that passage, as scripture gives us a, an insight into his inner dialogue, Saul's plan, he was hoping that these Philistines would kill David. And yet we find that Saul's plan backfires, and David is successful. In fact, he's more than successful. He doubles the amount that Saul has has asked for. So Saul ends up giving his daughter to David. David becomes the king's son-in-law. In fact, that's an important thing to note because that will have an effect on how David is treated in our passage this evening. Going on in chapters 19 and 20, Saul, having failed to kill David, to get the Philistines to kill David, Saul continues to try to trap David. He, he continues to, he, he tries to talk his servants into killing David. He tries to talk even Jonathan into killing David for him. In fact, one night he sends his soldiers into David's house itself to try to kill him. But Michael, David, or Saul's daughter, David's wife, saves David, warns him. Again, in chapter 20, Saul is determined to kill David, sending, trying to send Jonathan to even do it. And Jonathan responds by warning David. In fact, at the end of chapter 20, there's a very sad seen as David and and Jonathan realize that David is going to have to go on the run. Saul is determined to kill him. There is no more getting along. 
And they realize that they're going to have to part ways. As long as Saul is alive, these two friends are not going to be able to interact. And they hug and they cry. In fact, it tells us that David cried more than Jonathan. It's a beautiful scene, these two friends. But that's where we find ourselves as we come to chapter 21. David is newly on the run. It has become clear at this point that Saul's hatred for David is not something that's going to go away. David is now a permanent exile. He finds himself at the beginning of chapter 21 all alone. Saul's growing hatred for David has boiled over. In fact, the rest of 1 Samuel follows David on the run. And so it's in this context as a, as a newly condemned exile, quickly getting out of town. David didn't even have time to grab his weapons as we see in this passage. David is on the run. He is desperate. As you come to chapter 21, David goes to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And at first, Ahimelech is afraid when, he, when David comes. There, there's clearly that is something that is off about this situation. Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? What is going on? And notice David's answer. David lies. David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business. He said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you, or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Notice the vagueness there, of David, even in David's lie. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. David lies. We don't know why David lies. We're not told in the passage. I imagine David in, in his fear and his worry, trying to come to grips with the situation in which he finds himself. He doesn't know how the priests are going to react. He carries the lie forward here, asking for bread. The priest answered, David said, there's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. This is the bread of the presence. This is bread that is used in, in worship and sacrifice. It is bread that, at the end, when it's all done, is meant to be eaten by the priests. It's part of God's provision for them. In fact, technically, in this passage, as Ahimelech gives this bread to David, he's breaking the law. But what's fascinating is that Jesus himself uses this very story to highlight the fact that the Lord prefers mercy over ceremonial law. In Mark 22, 25 to 26, Jesus does not condemn Ahimelech. Rather, he puts him forth as a good example of someone who saw the need for mercy. So David here tricks Ahimelech. He tricks him into giving, giving him this food. 
the showbread. It's before the Lord. And this all does not go unnoticed. You see, it's important to note that David's lie would have been just as wrong if the tragic consequence that we see later in this chapter never happened. If no one else but Ahimelech and David knew about this, it still would have been just as wrong. A lie is a lie. But there is someone who hears. It is Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen, one of Saul's servants. He's sitting there, he's watching, he's listening. But David doesn't just need food, as I mentioned before. David is without his weapons. So he asks Ahimelech, is there a sword or a spear on hand? Something. I left on the king's business in haste. The priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. There it is, wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. I find it interesting that in the midst of David's lie, he's reminded of God's faithfulness. This sword, as David carried it, would have been a constant reminder of David's great victory and of God's great faithfulness. And even here, at one of David's lowest moments to this point, we find a reminder of the greatness of God. You would think that this would have reminded David, you know what? Yes, I am afraid. Yes, I am on the run, but God protected me from Goliath. He can protect me from Saul. I stood up for what was right then. I can stand up for what is right now. My great-great-grandfather had a saying. It is never right to do wrong in order to have an opportunity to do right. It is never right to do wrong in order to have an opportunity to do right. David here in fear, he likely tries to justify his lie. He thinks that it is all right because he's on the run, because he is the Lord's anointed. And brothers and sisters, a lie is a lie. It is always a lie. It is only a lie. David reacts here in fear rather than in faith. That's not it. Even as you go on to verse 10, David arose and fled that day from before Saul. He's still on the run. He went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, this is just... It, it seems to be a completely illogical move. David is on the run from Saul. He's looking for someone to take him in. Perhaps in David's fleeing, perhaps his thought is that he will go to Achish, the king of Gath, that, that, that he can maybe serve 
It's just an anonymous mercenary, something that he can do in the meantime, something to keep him occupied, to keep him safe. But he's quickly recognized. And it's not really a surprise that he is quickly recognized. David, his, his great plan, in his haste, this great warrior, this great leader, his plan was to take Goliath's sword and to go to Goliath's hometown and to blend in the man who himself killed Goliath and was famous for it. It's no surprise that he's quickly recognized here. Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David, already fleeing in fear, is now overcome by fear. Brothers and sisters, fear does not foster faith. Rather, it drives us away from faith. David is running in fear. He's reacting in fear. In fact, fear, once again, causes David to do something ridiculous. Not only has it driven him to lie, but now it drives him to humiliate himself, to deceive these people, pretending to be insane. David here is continuing to display a lack of trust in God, driven by his fear that's seemingly uncharacteristic. This is not the man that we have come to know. And yet he is a man. How quickly worry and fear can take control. You know that from your own heart, do you not? I know that from my own heart. Even the best of us are helplessly weak and susceptible to failure, to fear. Even David himself who stood before Goliath so boldly as a youth. Now cowers in the shadows, foaming at the mouth, pretending to be mad. The rest of this passage goes on to show us David continuing to be on the run. And there's really a, there's a growing tension here as David the one who has been anointed to be king is getting further and further and further and further away from Jerusalem and as you work your way through the story the question that starts rising up in your mind is has God lost control 
Maybe Saul will win. David is being driven away. What is going to happen? As Achish, the king of Gath, sends David out, he departs from there. He escaped to the cave Adullam. And at this point, his, his family hears where he is. And they come to him. In fact, not just his family, but a, a ragtag group begins to form. These who are loyal to David, some of these men will go on to grow into David's most trusted advisors and soldiers over the next several years. David will take this group of malcontents, of those who are in debt and those who are in distress, and he will turn them into a formidable army because of his good, strong leadership. It's just a reminder to us, even as we work our way through this passage, as we wonder at what David is doing here. It's a reminder that even here, God sees him. Even on the run, overcome by fear, God is providing for David, sending him the men that he needs. David flees from there, from Mizpah to Mizpah of Moab. He takes his family with the hope that, that Mizpah will take them in. That the king, king of Moab will, will take them in. That he will protect them. It's, it's really a, a fairly a, a wise move, unlike his fleeing to Gath. If you'll remember correctly, Ruth was David's great-grandmother. Ruth, who was a Moabite. So really, David is going back to the homeland of his father. There's some connections there. There's a warning here from God. David has now found a place. He is safe. He's in this stronghold. He's found somewhere. This man who was on the run is now safe. And yet, Gad comes to David. Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And here we start to see a change in David. David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David, for the first time, this man ruled by fear, this man on the run, for the first time, he's found a place of safety. And yet this prophet of the Lord tells him to go back to Judah, the very place that he's running from, the very place where there's danger. And David obeys. David obeys. It shows here that, that that faith is still there. He's still willing to follow the Lord. As you come to verse 6, the scene changes. And it changes to Saul in his camp. Saul the jealous When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing around him. The scene here that is described, it's a scene where, where Saul appears to be secure. He appears to be safe. 
He appears to be comfortable. He's under a tree. He has his spear. He has his servants all around him. And yet even in this place, in his homeland, surrounded by his servants, holding his weapon, we, begin to, we continue to see the loneliness of Saul. as he's isolated more and more and more. The spear that he holds in his hand is the very same spear that he tried to kill David with, even a spear that he threw at his son Jonathan at one point. And standing here, secure and safe, surrounded by his servants, rather than than finding comfort, he throws out accusations. Saul is paranoid. He turns to people from his own tribe, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Look how I've provided for you. Look what I've done. I've made you captains. I've given you fields. I've given you vineyards. That you've conspired against me. If not conspired against him, Saul is just spiraling more and more out of control. There is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There is not one of you who is sorry for me. It's amazing to back up and to think that all of this has started. Saul's spiral out of control. Saul's complete loss of reality. All of this started because Saul became jealous of David after hearing some women sing of David's triumph over Goliath. It sparked a jealousy in his heart that he did not deal with, but that grew and grew and grew. How foolish is jealousy? And yet, once again, just like fear, how susceptible are you and I? How easy, how quickly jealousy grips our hearts. Doeg speaks up. The one who had seen David. The one who had heard what the priests provided. Doeg speaks up and tells Saul what he has witnessed. The king sent to Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king, and Saul said to them, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he said, Here I am, my lord. And note Saul's charge against him. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as to this day. Note how, how Saul here is adding to things. Yes, he provided bread. Yes, he provided sword. But he did not inquire of God for, for, for David that he should rise against Saul, that he should lie in wait. He's not working with David to try to overthrow Saul. This is merely a faithful priest trying to be faithful to the job that he's been called to. 
In fact, he pushes back on Saul here. Who among all your servants is as faithful as David? This is how the people view David. Who's as faithful as David? He's the king's son-in-law. You would think of all people that you could help, you could help the king's son-in-law. He goes at your bidding. He's honorable in your house. We are innocent. I knew nothing of this. And yet Saul, in his jealous rage, you shall surely die. None of his servants will do it, except Doeg the Edomite. And on that day, Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests. He killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. All of this death and destruction because of one little tiny lie. This was not David's intention. And this is Saul's doing. But it comes about because of David's lie. In fact, that's where we continue to see the growth in David. In verses 20 to 23, this one priest who gets away, Abiathar, David here recognizes that he has done wrong. I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of the persons of your father's house. Unlike Saul, David takes responsibility. David sees his wrong and he repents and he takes responsibility. He takes steps to make it right. Stay with me, do not fear. For he seeks my life, seeks your life. But with me you shall be safe. Brothers and sisters, this is a crazy passage. Men who are driven by fear, men who are controlled by jealousy. In the end, over 80 people who die because of it. And two men who should know better. David and Saul. David has resorted to lying, to deceiving, to running. When he should have stole, stood boldly, he should have trusted the Lord to work out the details. He had the faith to face Goliath, but he lacked the courage to stand up to Saul. I wasn't there. I don't know the circumstances. 
But what I do know is I know what God had promised David. I know what he had set him apart for. And I know that God, being faithful, would have fulfilled his promises to David. Whether he lied to the priest to get his food or not, God is faithful. God would have provided. David had no need to take things into his own hands, reacting in fear in the moment. Brothers and sisters, I think the reminder for us in this passage is that we too ought not to react in fear. We ought not to be driven by our fear, controlled by jealousy. It's easy for us to to talk of faith in God, of trusting Him when it comes to our eternal security. And yet when it comes to little day-to-day details, we worry We react in fear. These things ought not so to be. Let us be a people who stand boldly and faithfully on the promises of God. No matter what we see in the moment, no matter what it feels like or looks like from our perspective, trust the Lord. Don't be driven by fear. Do not be controlled by jealousy. Trust in your faithful God. We're going to close this evening with the song, May the Lord Find Us Faithful. The first verse of this song, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he has given us the strength to obey. With power and sound mind, with love the unfailing kind, oh, be not ashamed of his way. May the Lord find us faithful. May his word be our banner held high. May the Lord find us faithful every day, though we live, though we die. Be faithful. Let's stand together and sing number 429, May the Lord find us faithful.